Chronicles Revisited Podcast, Episode 14. Touch the screen. Touch the screen. The HP 150 launches the Computer Chronicles. Welcome to the Chronicles Revisited Podcast. I'm S.M. Oliva. I write the blog Computer Chronicles Revisited, which reviews the people, products, and companies featured on the PBS series that aired between 1983 and 2002. In this podcast, I go in-depth on stories that I've previously featured on the blog. For this episode, I'm looking back at the 40th anniversary of Computer Chronicles, which recorded its first national broadcast in October 1983. That inaugural episode provided an overview of the development of computers from mainframes to mini-computers, and finally to microcomputers like the IBM PC. But Chronicles chose to focus instead on the newest microcomputer offering from one of IBM's main rivals, Hewlett-Packard. Hewlett-Packard was one of the original Silicon Valley companies. Founded in 1939 by Stanford-trained engineers Bill Hewitt and David Packard in a Palo Alto garage, HP built its reputation developing electrical instruments and serving as a military contractor during World War II. By the 1960s, HP had diversified into a number of areas including computing. Hewlett-Packard's first mini-computer, the 2116A, debuted in 1966, although the company described it to the press at the time as an instrumentation controller. David Packard later said he refused to call the 2116 a computer because that would imply the company was in direct competition with IBM, who was not only the dominant computer company in the country, but also an important HP customer. But a computer by any other name was still a computer. And in 1972, HP followed up on the 2116 by launching the HP 3000 line of mini-computers, which proved so successful they were officially supported well into the early 2000s. That said, Hewlett-Packard was not an early entrant into the microcomputer market when it started to take shape towards the end of the 1970s. In 1976, Hewlett-Packard management famously declined to develop a microcomputer prototype created by one of its engineering interns, Steve Wozniak, who later turned it into the Apple I. But by the start of the 1980s, Hewlett-Packard realized it was behind the ball at not having something available for the growing business microcomputer market. So in 1981, the company launched its 100 series of personal computers. The first machine in the series, the HP 125, was based on two Zilog Z80 microprocessors, came standard with 64 kilobytes of RAM, and used Gary Kildall's CPM operating system. The 125 also had an integrated monitor that used the same housing as HP's dumb terminals. A year later, in 1982, Hewlett-Packard released the HP 120, which was effectively a smaller version of the 125. But it was the third machine in the 100 series that merited an honored place as the first on-air demo in Computer Chronicles history. That was the HP 150. What made the 150 stand out from its predecessors, and indeed every other personal computer on the market in 1983, was that it featured a touchscreen interface. Hewlett-Packard marketed the 150 as the HP 150 touchscreen personal computer. Cyril Yonsuni, the general manager of HP's personal computer division, personally appeared on the Chronicle's premiere episode with Stuart Chaffee, Gary Kildall, and SRI International's Herbert Lechner. And Cyril, we mentioned that the HP 150 is a good example of one of the newest microcomputers in the field. Maybe you could run a demonstration program uh, for us and, and particularly point out the new technology aspects of it. Yes, I'd like to do that very much. Um, I think when we uh, set up to design uh, the HP 150, uh, we had in mind 
the uh, professional user, but the user who is uh, sophisticated in the use of information, but not sophisticated at all in the use, direct use of a computer tool. Uh, so we really focused on uh, uh, developing a technology and a total approach for a very intuitive use of a personal computer. And what we have embedded in uh, the HP 150, the most visible part is uh, what we call touchscreen capability. The fact that you can interact directly with the personal computer without accessing the keyboard by basically using what is the most intuitive tool that you have, basically using your finger to point and select um, objects or select things on the screen. Could, could you show us with, like, with what you have up there? I would like to show you what we have on the screen there. What we have on the screen there is what I call an electronic Rolodex. Uh, we all are very familiar with the Rolodex on our desk. It's a set of cards and you can turn wheels back and forth until you see the right name as an example appears in front of you. We can do exactly the same thing here. I have an electronic Rolodex. It appears very much like a Rolodex on the screen and I can move it up. I can move it down just by pointing on the wheel on, uh, on the screen. I can go and select a name. Let's suppose that now I have uh, the set of names and I want to select a name there. I have stewardship a name there. I can just select that card and, and, and the Rolodex opens there and I get all the information that I have uh, embedded in the product on uh, Stuart Chauffet. I have his address, his phone number, and so on. As a matter of fact, if what I want to do next is call him, I just uh, indicated I want to dial the phone. And uh, if I had a modem attached to the product here through a phone, I would automatically dial, dial the phone. So uh, let's go back to uh, the Rolodex. And uh, you can see then I can really roll it up, and I can roll it down, and I can do quite a few uh, things. You can recall, again, just by pointing, uh, the application. I can recall uh, the specific program what I could have selected again just by pointing to the screen another application. Is, is Touchscreen is not really new as a technology. It's kind of a, a new application of this in this computer. Is that right? That's absolutely true. Touchscreen is not new to technology uh, and it's not a new technology. It has been used uh, on terminals mostly as again a pointing and a selection device. What we have done there is really embedding very well the touchscreen capability of the product with the software, with the application, and really trying to see everywhere we could replace keyboard access by basically pointing directly to the screen. So do you see a, a shift from using a keyboard to using touch, touch uh, screen, this touchscreen display? For example, uh, well, uh, we have lots and lots of applications that are written for small computer systems, and uh, how are you going to get all those programs to move over to a touchscreen? Okay, uh, I think that uh, the way we have designed the product, in fact, is by allowing very simply current and existing application to basically use a touchscreen capability. The product itself has built the ability to recognize if you are putting your finger and really uh, selecting either a specific place uh, where, uh, where you want to put your finger on or an area where you have your finger uh, in that specific area. So you don't really have to burden the application itself by all that. It's really basically repla replacing the movement of cursor, mm -hmm. okay? But again, instead of having to move the cursor with, your, uh, with the keyboard or with any other device, you can really point to it directly with your finger. One of the criticisms, though, has been that, uh, that holding your finger up there in your arm would be kind of tiring. In fact, I heard somebody say that there was an attachment they, they thought was going to come out for the <laughs> HP 150, which is a little armrest, <laughs> and holds your arm up while you're touching it. How do you, is, that, is there a problem with that, or is um, that just a rumor? <laughs> all the studies that we, have, that we have made, and we have very extensively tested the product, obviously, before uh, we put it on the market, show that this is really not a true, a true problem. You don't mm -hmm. really spend a lot of time with your hands up there and pointing to, to, to the screen. Um, I have my, my, myself a 
a pretty good feeling that the ideal user interface, as a matter of fact, doesn't really exist. It's really going to come out of the combination and a lot of experimentation of a lot of the user interface that today exists, like touchscreen, like ability to move a cursor through a mouse or a tablet, probably one day also using voice. And I think mm -hmm. it's going to be a combination of all those different user interfaces applied to very optimally to some specific type of application. I think there are going to be a good matching of the kind of user interface with the kind of application. So I think it's going to be a combination of all those user interfaces which are really going to make another step forward in user friendliness. Mm -hmm. So how did Hewlett Packard arrive at the decision to incorporate the touchscreen as a standard feature with the 150? Not long after Cyril Yonsuni's Chronicles appearance, Hewlett Packard's Bob Pewitt made a public presentation on the 150 to the Boston Computer Society then one of the largest computer user groups in the country. Pewitt explained that the original HP 125 had not been a success, due largely to the fact HP announced it the day before IBM launched its own personal computer in August 1981. Three months later, in November 1981, Hewlett-Packard started to formulate its strategy for what would become the 150. Hewlett-Packard decided to abandon the 125 Z80 and CPM-based design and follow IBM's lead in using the Intel 8088 microprocessor for the CPU and MS-DOS for the operating system. But to be clear, the 150 was not an IBM PC cloner compatible. Hewlett-Packard did not copy or reverse engineer the IBM BIOS like Compaq or the other early clone makers did. Rather, the 150 relied on vanilla system calls in DOS to the Intel CPU. So any software that specifically required those additional calls from the IBM BIOS would not work at all with the 150. According to Bob Hewitt, the move to add the touchscreen began in January 1982, when Hewlett-Packard management decided to combine the personal computer and terminal divisions into a single unit under Cyril Yonsuni. At this point, the 150's development team learned about the touchscreen research underway at the terminal divisions laboratory. Impressed by the technology, the 150 team decided to incorporate the touchscreen into their machine as an option. Now, calling the 150's display a touchscreen may be a bit confusing to modern consumers who are used to devices like an iPad or a smartphone. Technically, you didn't actually have to touch the screen on the 150. As Cyril Yonsuni explained during his Chronicles demo, the 150's display relied on a grid of infrared sensors embedded in the bezel of the monitor. When the user's finger simply hovered over part of that grid, it broke the beams at a specific intersection of the X and Y axes. When the user then removed their finger, allowing the beams to resume, that signaled a valid hit to the CPU. Jim Sutton and John Lee, who led the 150's design team, told Byte Magazine in 1983 that they settled on this optical approach to the touchscreen because it was cheaper and more reliable than the alternative, which involved placing a special film on the cathode ray tube monitor to track the movement of the user's finger. The film approach also reduced the contrast and visibility of the display, which, keep in mind, was a two-color black and phosphor green monitor. The trade-off, however, was that the film allowed for more precise touch controls. Phil Lemons and Barbara Robertson, who reviewed the HP 150 for Byte, said in their testing they had no difficulty pointing to the defined touch areas at the bottom of the screen or at the name of a file or program that you wanted to run. But it was difficult, if not impossible, to select a specific pixel or text character with any degree of reliability. You still needed the cursor keys to perform fine movements. Despite these limitations, Bob Pewitt said that when they performed the first focus group testing of the 150 in early 1983, users loved the touchscreen. They loved it so much, 
Yansuni decided to make it a standard feature rather than an optional extra. This meant making sure there was software ready to use with the touchscreen. Hewlett-Packard provided some in-house applications bundled with the HP 150. This included the personal applications manager and personal card file that Cyril Yansuni demonstrated. HP also developed MemoMaker, a simple text editor with basic word processing functionality, Financial Calculator, a program that mimicked the company's popular HP 12C handheld calculator, and perhaps most notably VisiCalc, then the industry standard for computer spreadsheet software. VisiCalc initially debuted on the Apple II back in 1979, jump-starting sales of that machine to the small business market. Over the next four years, VisiCalc's publisher, VisiCorp, ported the spreadsheet to essentially every other major computer platform on the market. But VisiCalc, like most early business software, required the user to navigate a complex set of keyboard commands to perform most tasks. So adapting the program for HP's fancy new touchscreen required more than a simple port of the existing MS-DOS code. In fact, it took the efforts of a team made up of engineers from Hewlett-Packard's own office computer and office systems teams to develop what was essentially an extended version of VisiCalc that maintained backwards compatibility. Other third-party software developers took on the challenge of developing for the HP 150 in-house. MicroPro International, another company I've recently covered on this podcast, built a special touchscreen version of its popular WordStar word processing program. MicroPro employees told Byte that the process turned out to be quite difficult, not because of any technical problems with Hewlett-Packard's touchscreen interface, but because WordStar itself was written in 14,000 lines of assembly language code that essentially needed to be reworked line by line. These efforts seemingly paid off, at least for the Byte reviewers, who said the touchscreen improved both VisiCalc and WordStar by making them much more agreeable for new and experienced users alike. Hewlett-Packard formally announced the HP 150 touchscreen in September 1983, about a month before Cyril Yansuni's Chronicles appearance. An HP spokesman told the press that with its new machine leading the way, the company would be among the top three personal computer manufacturers within two to three years. Industry analyst Alex Stein, however, told the San Francisco Examiner that he didn't see the 150 as a final answer for HP, but it was a good first step. Stein added that while HP still posed no serious threat to industry leader IBM in the microcomputer market, the 150 could take business away from Apple or Tandy. Indeed, Apple may have been HP's immediate target with the 150. During his Boston Computer Society presentation, Hewlett-Packard's Bob Pewitt showed benchmarks that favorably compared the 150 to not just the IBM PC, but also the Apple II and the Apple III. And during the course of the 150's development, Apple released the Lisa, a $10,000 desktop PC that featured a full-fledged graphical operating system. The Lisa wasn't compatible with MS-DOS, and there was virtually no third-party software available. That, combined with the high price point, made it Apple's second failure to build a business-specific computer after the Apple III. Of course, even as late as October 1983, it wasn't completely obvious to the tech press that the Lisa was a dud. In fact, the Lisa was a featured product on the second episode of Computer Chronicles taped that month, and longtime Chronicles contributor Wendy Woods even favorably described the HP 150 at launch as a Lisa-like micro. Yet even by the summer of 1983, the first rumors had surfaced of Apple's forthcoming replacement for the Lisa, the Macintosh, which formally debuted in January 1984. In some respects, the Macintosh launch probably blindsided the Hewlett-Packard folks as IBM had done with the PC two years earlier. The Macintosh, like the HP 150, 
was built to attract new users who were uncomfortable with the traditional PC command line interface. But the Macintosh did it with a fully graphical interface controlled by a mouse. Keep in mind, the mouse was not a standard feature of personal computers in 1984. Apple didn't invent the technology. SRI's Douglas Engelbart and Bill English developed the first working mouse prototype in 1967. But 1983 was the year when commercial microcomputer manufacturers started incorporating the device into their products. Hewlett Packard even released a mouse for the 150 in 1984 as a $150 accessory. In retrospect, the HP 150 and the Macintosh offered competing visions for how to make computers more accessible. And the mouse ended up beating the touchscreen, at least in this time period. But the 150 and the Macintosh also shared another feature that marked a significant departure from the IBM PC standard. Both machines had 3.5-inch floppy disk drives, as opposed to the 5.25-inch drives used by the PC. Again, neither Apple nor HP were first to market with a computer that had a 3.5-inch disk drive. The YouTube channel Tech Tangents recently released a video explaining how that honor likely goes to an obscure CPM-based machine called the Jonos Escort. But Hewlett-Packard was the first major U.S. computer manufacturer to embrace the 3.5-inch microfloppy standard created by the Japanese technology company Sony. In November 1982, Hewlett-Packard announced that the HP 120, the smaller successor to the 125, would come with dual 3.5-inch drives as a standard option. Similarly, the HP 150 could be configured with dual microfloppies or a single 3.5-inch drive paired with a hard disk. Unlike the Macintosh, which had a single 3.5-inch floppy disk built directly into the computer and no hard drive option, the 150's disk drives were housed in a separate unit that fit underneath the main computer and built-in display. In most respects, the HP 150 was a superior computer to the Macintosh. It wasn't just more configurable in terms of disk drives. The entire machine followed Hewlett-Packard's open approach to computer architecture and servicing, unlike the closed-off Macintosh. The HP 150 even had a slightly higher graphics resolution. The machines were also fairly comparable on price. Apple initially sold the Macintosh for around $2,500, while Hewlett-Packard priced the base model of the 150 at just under $2,800. But in another move that suggested Hewlett-Packard saw Apple as its immediate competitor in the microcomputer market, HP announced in April 1984 that it would offer the 150 at 45% below list price, about $2,200, to students at Stanford University. This was in direct response to Apple offering the Macintosh to st students at Stanford and other select college campuses for just $1,000. Ultimately, the Macintosh and the HP 150 served different roles for their respective companies. Apple needed the Macintosh to be a success following the disasters that were the Apple III and the Lisa. Hewlett-Packard, in contrast, wasn't betting the farm on the 150. HP still had a strong mini-computer business, and in many respects, the HP 150 was an extension of that. That's because while the 150 ran MS-DOS locally, it also served as a terminal emulator for the HP 3000 mini-computer with full graphics capability. So the 150 was really more of an evolutionary step for Hewlett-Packard than the revolutionary step promised by the Macintosh. This evolution continued with the launch of the HP 110, more commonly known as the HP Portable, in May 1984, roughly six months after the debut of the 150. The 110 was a fully portable and mostly IBM PC compatible with an LCD screen and a battery that promised up to 16 hours of use, all for just $3,000, which was quite a bargain compared to IBM's own much chunkier portable, the 5155, 
which released in February 1984 at a price of over $4,200. Hewlett-Packard did not immediately abandon the 150, however. In April 1985, the company announced a successor, the HP 150 Touchscreen 2. Despite keeping the name, the second model actually dropped the touchscreen as a standard feature. It was now just an optional extra, suggesting Hewlett-Packard realized there wasn't enough customer demand or third-party software support for an interface used by no other manufacturer. The touchscreen 2 remained in HP's product catalog until around 1989. But by the end of 1985, the company decided to sunset the 100 series and move to its next generation of microcomputers with a PC-AT clone, the $3,200 HP Vectra. The Vectra line went on to become Hewlett-Packard's mainline series of business PCs until the early 2000s. Before ending the podcast, let's look at the man who demonstrated the HP 150 on the inaugural Computer Chronicles, Cyril Yonsuni. Born in Egypt on June 11, 1942, Yansuni emigrated to Belgium at the age of 17 to attend the University of Louvain. While at Louvain, Yansuni met John Linville, the dean of Stanford University's Electrical Engineering School. It turned out the two men were conducting similar research, and Linville later invited Yansuni to come to Palo Alto on a graduate fellowship. Yansuni recalled in a 1984 interview with Stuart Walpin, a professional computing magazine, that he spent 1966 and 1967 earning his master's degree at Stanford, but he had no specific career goals other than wanting to someday manage a project. After completing his master's degree, Yansuni joined Hewlett-Packard in late 1967 as a research and development engineer in the company's microwave division. Yansuni initially worked under Paul Eli Jr., who later became general manager of Hewlett-Packard's computer group. Yansuni also moved to the computer side of the company during the 1970s. He convinced his bosses to let him join a startup team in France that was preparing to market HP's 1000 series of mini-computers in Europe. Within a year, he was the division's general manager. By 1981, Yansuni was in charge of three different Hewlett-Packard plants under the company's data terminal division. When HP decided to consolidate the data terminal and personal computer divisions, Yansuni then assumed responsibility for the entire group. But Yansuni was reportedly frustrated by the internal bureaucracy and overall conservative approach by upper management at Hewlett-Packard. In 1986, he left the company after nearly 20 years to join San Jose-based Convergent Technologies as its new president. Convergent was a struggling computer manufacturer best known for developing the Workslate, an early tablet computer released in late 1983, and AT&T's Unix PC. In January 1985, the company's founding CEO, Alan Michaels, decided to step aside in favor of a new president, who just happened to be Hewlett-Packard's Paul Eli. Roughly 21 months later, Eli brought in Yansuni to take over as president, with Eli remaining as chairman and CEO. Incidentally, Hewlett-Packard named Bob Hewitt to take over Yansuni's old job as vice president and general manager of the personal computer division. Hewitt remained in that position until January 1990 when he left Hewlett-Packard to join Apple as president of its domestic division. But back to Yansuni. His arrival at Convergent came as the company reported a $25.7 million loss for the third quarter of 1986. The company's sales had dropped 45% from the comparable quarter of 1985. And just a couple of months earlier, Convergent laid off about 26% of its staff. So it was a fairly dire situation. And as is often the case when you have a flailing company, your best option is to quickly find a buyer. And that's exactly what Eli and Yansuni did. 
In August 1988, Unisys Corporation purchased Convergent Technologies for $350 million. The two companies were longtime partners, as Unisys was a reseller and licensee of Convergent's PCs. At the time, Unisys had a particular interest in Convergent's Unix systems business, which was then a growing market. After the acquisition, Eli became an executive vice president and board member of Unisys, as well as president of the company's network computing group. Yansuni was named a Unisys vice president and remained as president of what was now the Convergent Technologies subsidiary. Initially, there was talk that Eli might eventually succeed Unisys chairman and CEO W. Michael Blumenthal, but in July 1989, Eli abruptly resigned for health reasons. Yansuni then succeeded him as executive vice president and head of the network computing group. Less than two years later, in February 1991, Yansuni quit Unisys himself and took the top job as chairman and CEO of Reed Wright Corporation. Founded in 1981, Reed Wright was a leading manufacturer of thin film recording heads for hard disk drives. At the time, Reed Wright had a market share of about 50%. Unfortunately for ReadWrite, about 40% of their sales were to a single customer, Western Digital Corporation. And in the early 1990s, Western Digital pushed ReadWrite to make a significant change to the design of its recording heads. Yansuni and his team refused, instead pushing to develop next-generation technology to replace the existing heads altogether. Western Digital didn't like this plan, however, so they shifted a major portion of its drivehead orders to ReadWrite's two main competitors. Yansuni then backtracked and decided to accept the change that Western Digital had demanded, but the damage had been done. ReadWrite's earnings and stock price plummeted, and one of its competitors, Applied Magnetics, launched a $1.7 billion hostile takeover bid in March 1997. Yansuni successfully thwarted the takeover attempt, but ReadWrite continued to limp along until June 2002, when it filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. In July 2003, a federal bankruptcy trustee auctioned off ReadWrite's assets. Ironically, Western Digital submitted the highest bid. The trustee rejected the bid, however, due to antitrust concerns and recommended awarding the ReadWrite assets to a group composed of three other companies. But the bankruptcy judge overseeing the case decided to hold a second auction instead. This time, Western Digital submitted an even larger bid and won. Cyril Yansuni remained with ReadWrite until the final bankruptcy sale in 2003. Since then, he served as a director for a number of companies. He's also currently the president of the Carmel Bach Festival, an annual series of four-day concerts held in Monterey County, California. And that's all for this episode of the Chronicles Revisited podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode, there are links in the show notes. You can also visit my website, Computer Chronicles Revisited, at smoliva.blog. That's S-M-O-L-I-V-A dot blog, which contains full episode recaps and analysis. In the next episode, I'll look back at the 1987 launch of Apple's HyperCard, which prompted one Computer Chronicles regular to start her own magazine and led a struggling computer game publisher called Activision to try and reinvent itself as a small business software company. Talk to you then. 